Alan Jones, direct to the people, right across Australia. Well, good evening. Now, thank you for joining us. I've got to tell you something. We are an immodest lot around here, but I have to say it's a mood of excitement. This is a pioneering digital broadcasting initiative. This is the new media, and you can watch us when you like. Just repeating what you most probably know, everything's on the website, alanjones.com.au, but we're now getting used to this because if you want to sit in front of the TV on the lounge... Go to YouTube and search for Alan Jones Australia and click on the live stream link. I'm laughing because one of my staff can't spell, can't spell the word lounge, but it, the live stream link, and anyway, the show will appear on your TV Monday to Thursday at 8 o'clock. And it's Thursday and here we are. Now, of course, you can watch on my own Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia, via your computer or your mobile phone. And there's room for your comments too on all of the platforms. As you know, my theme in the opening broadcast has been about freedom. There is a golden rule in politics. And when you're sick of saying it, are the public going to hear it? How interesting, isn't it, that politicians are now talking about freedom? The same people who denied us every freedom imaginable for almost two years. And then they want to praise themselves for how they handled coronavirus. We knew at the outset you had to look after the vulnerable, the elderly, those with comorbidities and people in remote and Indigenous communities. But government did what was not done in war or during the Spanish flu or ever, shut the nation down. As I've been reminding you, it was George Orwell who said, we know no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinqu- without the intention of relinquishing it. He also said, power is, this is important, power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Is that where we are today? as the headlines talk ominously about Omicron. Indeed, there's more than a little alarmism in Britain, where the UK has recorded its highest ever daily number of COVID cases, 78,610. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in any amount of trouble on a range of fronts. And by the way, in the next 24 hours, there's going to be a by-election in Shropshire. With a majority of over 30,000, it's been held by the Conservatives for over 100 years, and I think the Conservatives will lose. That'll cause more friction. But he's in trouble on a range of fronts. But he is holding his nerve on this. There were fears that a new lockdown might be announced and there was all sorts of talk about threats to the National Health Service. What doesn't command the headline is that there has been one death from Omicron and so far it's not clear in Britain if the patient had been vaccinated or had any underlying health issues. But it is the first publicly confirmed death globally. Nonetheless, the Grinches, the grumpy people who want to spoil the pleasures of others, especially at Christmas time, are at it again. Remember, Christmas was cancelled last year, along with school holidays. We have world-leading vaccination rates. Tell the Grinches to go home. We can do without the alarmist talk of the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard. Do these people just pick the most alarmist statistics and head straight to the media? Brad Hazard talked yesterday of new modelling. Someone must have put a piece of paper in front of him which showed cases, quote, could reach 25,000 a day in January. Cases. This apparently is from the Epidemiology Public Health Unit at the University of New South Wales. So here again, we're quoting cases. Well, one of the world's most distinguished infectious disease physicians is here in Australia at the ANU, Professor Peter Collignon. I mentioned this last night. I'll say it again. He was quite specific this week when he said, case numbers should not be our focus. 
We should look at hospitalizations and deaths. Are you listening, Brad Hazard? But there was Brad Hazard yesterday with a 25,000 prediction of cases. Professor Colin Young said this week, if you look at some of the predictions made earlier this year, remember he mentioned the Bernard Institute, which the federal government treated, I might add, with a certain biblical truth. Professor Colin Young said, if you look at some of the predictions made earlier this year, the Bernard Institute ones in particular, they were massively wrong. Professor Colin Young went to the nub of the issue and he said, with Omicron, could it get worse? Yes, it could. It probably spreads more, but we are not seeing any evidence in South Africa of massive numbers of immunised people being in hospital. He said we have to be careful not to overreact. I'll come to the South African issue in a moment. Professor Colin Young went on. If you look at the cases from New South Wales in the past week, the vast majority are in people who are under 40 and therefore at much lower risk and at much lower risk again if they are immunised, unquote. Professor Colin Yon has said, I repeat, case numbers should not be our focus. Stop shoving these case numbers down our throat. That is the diet we've been fed for nearly two years. Premiers have to hold firm, and may I suggest do a bit of homework. From one minute after midnight this Saturday, West Australian Premier McGowan, because we recorded 1,360 new cases on Wednesday and 1,742 today, which is the highest number ever recorded in New South Wales. McGowan will enact a hard border for Victoria as well. But there were no deaths in the reporting period. Victoria's had 1,622 new infections. But Premier McGowan has said in WA, anyone in New South Wales or Victoria who's planning to return under an exemption should return immediately. The only people allowed into WA, trivial pursuits question, have a guess, from New South Wales and Victoria. From Saturday will be select Commonwealth and state officials, members of parliament, diplomats and specialists, or people who meet extraordinary circumstances determined by the police commissioner or the chief health officer. The rest of us are second class citizens. No one is seeking to diminish the seriousness of any illness. It should be pointed out that the Omicron variant did not originate in South Africa but the first confirmed infections came from foreign visitors to Botswana on November 11. So it was first reported in South Africa. That doesn't stop the media from referring to it as the South African variant, which it isn't. In fact, reported new findings show the Omicron variant was spreading in the Netherlands before the first case was identified in Southern Africa. Nonetheless, it's instructive to note the comments of the CEO of the leading South African private hospital group, Netcare. He has said in the last week they've had 22 COVID mortalities in the past month. The past month, compared to up to 50 a day during previous waves of infection. Richard Friedland's his name, he said, early indications are the virus is mutating, which means changing in its nature, just like the Spanish flu did, with successive waves becoming increasingly milder until the virus posed little risk to human beings, unquote. Now, I've got no doubt that those views will be tested by world authorities. But his point is, in the early stages of coronavirus, his hospital group was under enormous pressure. But, quote, that is not the case at the moment. What this means is there is a decoupling of cases from the rate of hospital transmissions. He argues they've had very few admissions for COVID-19, that's hospital admissions, his view being that the new variant is causing mild to moderate disease. And of course, he highlights the continuing risk for the elderly and those with comorbidities and those not vaccinated. He makes the point that what he's seeing now is patients who test positive, 
but they don't need any form of oxygen therapy. But, quote, if you look at admissions over the first three waves, that was the original strain, beta and then delta, he said every single patient who came to hospital needed some form of oxygen. He said their lungs were infected by the COVID-19 virus. He went on, only 15% of our patients are currently on oxygen. He argued that his private hospital group had approximately 22 deaths that could be ascribed to the Omicron variant. That is since November 15, but, quote, that is a fraction of what we were seeing daily during any of the previous waves. He made the point about the Spanish flu that, quote, the Spanish flu never went away, it stopped killing people. But it morphed into what we know is a very transmissible influenza or flu-like virus that is still with us today, unquote. He argues that one cannot say for certain that Omicron variant is robust enough to become a global phenomenon and that it won't be outpaced or overtaken by another more severe variant. It is, he says, probably too early to make any definitive views. What he said, this is the CEO of South Africa's leading private hospital group, Netcare, quote, we know that it is highly contagious and transmissible, 4.2 times as transmissible as the Delta variant, which was over a 100% more transmissible than the Beta variant, which itself was substantially more transmissible than the original strain. He said, we know that it causes mild to moderate disease, but there is no evidence that it causes severe disease expected in patients that are elderly and have severe comorbidities. Now, the third point he makes, of which he says, quote, we are uncertain, but it does appear, he said, to be the case that the variant is fit enough to take over and outpace existing variants like Delta. And he said, quote, certainly in South Africa, it appears from laboratory data that this is indeed the case. But he then made a significant point. Are you listening, Brad Hazard? The fourth, ele fourth element that we don't really yet understand is how effective vaccination is. It does appear, he said, to be effective, but there is a debate still raging as to which vaccines and after how many boosters. One final point he makes. I can tell you one thing. He said 75% of the patients in our hospital who have COVID-19 are not vaccinated. He said, I think that speaks volumes to the point that we should all be vaccinated. He said, the majority of those who've died, about 22 deaths since November 15, are patients who have not been vaccinated, unquote. So what conclusions can we draw from the alarmist headlines we have to eat out on again today? They're simply quite simple. Firstly, we must be responsible for our own health. I don't need Braz Hadard to tell me how to look after myself. Be sensible, be aware. Secondly, we can do without political agents of fear and alarmism. And thirdly, one can only hope that those who purport to govern listen to more people worldwide than they have in the past. And finally, I'd be trusting Professor Peter Collignon, quote, case numbers should not be our focus. We should look at hospitalisations and deaths, unquote. Well, amongst all those numbers in New South Wales from last night, there were no deaths. Well, look, as I said earlier, it is clear that politicians have run out of political capital on this question of freedom. Never again will we allow ourselves to be told that we can't sit on a park bench, that we can't go for a swim, that we can't even go outside or as one public health official told us, we couldn't even talk. I think the public are now awake. But the fight is not over. When Dominic Perrottet says that freedom is not a gift from government, it is our birthright, it's what our soldiers fought and died for, what follows is that never again must we allow politicians to intimidate us, fill us with alarmism, thrive on hysteria, 
and have a nation virtually cower in fear. The Prime Minister made an interesting speech this week, promising to give Australians their freedom back and get big government out of our lives. It's going to be hard for him to be believed because he stood by, silent, while his unconstitutional National Cabinet, bit by bit, stripped our freedoms away. Now he's saying that the prominence of government during the COVID crisis was, quote, not some new norm, it has a use-by date. He also said that governments empower people to make and pursue their choices. Yet in the country of which he is the leader, there are people today who have pursued their choice not to be vaccinated and they've lost their jobs. And he remains silent. Yet he talked in the speech this week at the Sydney Institute about economic opportunity and reward for hard work. Why then are almost a million people not working on welfare when employers have thousands and thousands of job vacancies? He spoke about, quote, the best traditions of liberal democracy, unquote, but they've been trashed over a virus that infected fewer than 1% of the population. These draconian measures were never taken during the war or the Spanish flu, but now the Prime Minister is saying that it's not normal for governments to tell people, quote, where we can and can't go, who we can and can't invite into our homes, to stay home, to close our businesses, unquote. What kind of double standard is this? He presided over these very limitations to our freedom. Indeed, in the whole Australian political world, only Dominic Perrottet has spoken out against these limitations on our freedom. Now he is saying it's time for government, the Prime Minister is, to quote, to step back and let Australians step forward. Hmm. Too bad if the same Australians lost their businesses, lost their jobs, lost their mental well-being, lost their dignity, and now find themselves stepping into a giant abyss. But the Prime Minister also touched on the promise to get government out of our lives. But staggering sums of money have been spent by his government, such that debt will be part of our life and the lives of the next generation for years to come. Let's face it, coalition governments have been in power for about 75% of the time since World War II. The promise to get government out of our lives simply can't be believed. I mean, if you look at the figures, government regularly boasts how many laws they pass. When the Gillard government passed 533 Acts of Parliament, that qualified her as Australia's most productive Prime Minister. That must rank our first parliamentarians as complete failures because it took over eight years for our first parliamentarians to pass enough laws to match the 206 Acts that our national politicians were able to pass in one year, 215. We are a country which might be a democracy, but it's run by bureaucrats. Listen to this, sit down or you'll faint. At last count, we've got about 42 ministers and assistant ministers, this is federal, 42 ministers and assistant ministers. So 20% of the federal parliament and 48% of the coalition party room are part of the executive. And Scott Morrison talks about getting government out of our lives. The Australian Government Directory lists 188 government departments and agencies and 148,736 federal public servants as in December 2020. Australia-wide, the Australian Bureau of Statistics report argues there are over 2 million public sector employees at the end of June 2020. 1,609,100 at the state government level. None of them lost a cent during coronavirus while they dished out dictatorial edicts to battling Australians in the last 17 months. In the last 10 years, 
State governments have added almost another 200,000 public sector employees. All of these people are directing our lives in some way and almost at every turn diminishing our freedom. As government grows, freedom contracts. Prime Minister, it's no use reciting these platitudes that we heard from you this week. Perhaps you should read President Ronald Reagan's farewell address to the nation in 1989 when he said, and I quote, I hope we once again have reminded people that man is not free unless government is limited. He said, there's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty contracts. Ronald Reagan. One further point can be made, which is exhibited in every news poll. While the government has been expanding, our trust in government has been diminishing. That is the crisis that all leaders face coming into the next election. Our men and women fought for freedom and gave their lives. People today are marching for freedom. Governments merely talk about it in order to secure your vote. I think you need to think twice. Well, look, let's walk into unfashionable territory. Julian Assange is an Australian. Whatever your opinion might be, he is one of us. As a senior political figure wrote to me earlier this year, quote, being thrown into jail until he dies because he exposed secrets that the US admits didn't cost lives. Let me make a couple of points which are conveniently ignored in all the discussion about Julian Assange. He's charged under the US Espionage Act and charged with one count under the US Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for passively receiving information. Julian Assange professionally is an Australian publisher. He is not accused of hacking. He's the first publisher in history to be charged with espionage. He faces 175 years in prison, all for engaging in regular journalistic activity, basically exposing what he believed was political corruption. One strategist on the Clinton side of things, a bloke by the name of Bob Beckel, actually called for Assange to be assassinated. The left-wing journalist Glenn Greenwald has written about Assange's investigative journalism, saying that those who denounce attacks on press freedom don't actually care about press freedom at all. They want to protect only the journalism that advances their political interests while putting people behind bars who publish information which undermines their political interests, unquote. The Republican Senator Rand Paul has said the Founding Fathers would have protected WikiLeaks at all costs and it's time that we inherit their spirit. What has to be said is that Julian Assange did not hack the US records, nor did he assist Chelsea Manning to hack the US servers. She already had access to the documents in question. Indeed, Chelsea Manning took full responsibility for obtaining the documents. All Assange and WikiLeaks did was passively receive information, then assist in protecting Manning as a source and publish the cables, just as the New York Times or The Guardian and other media organisations do every day. Indeed, Chelsea Manning said, although I stopped sending documents to WikiLeaks, no one associated with WikiLeaks pressured me into giving more information. She said the decisions I made to send documents and information to WikiLeaks were my own decisions and I take full responsibility for my actions. But because Julian Assange published, as did other media organisations, I might add, he's currently in maximum security prison in the UK, Belmarsh, as a prisoner. During the trial of Chelsea Manning, it was confirmed that no US personnel were put at risk or harmed due to the publications. But what has happened, the publisher, Assange, has been charged under the Espionage Act 
for exposing information that was embarrassing to the US government. Yet such charges against Assange pose serious threats to the First Amendment of the US Constitution, which guarantees freedoms concerning religion, expression, assembly, and the right to petition. And it clearly guarantees freedom of expression by prohibiting Congress from restricting the press or restricting the rights of individuals to speak freely. This Assange case has been going on for over 10 years. Understandably, respected psychiatrists have identified Assange as a person of high risk of suicide. On one occasion on his way to court, he was handcuffed 11 times, stripped searched twice, and his case notes were confiscated by prison authorities. Julian Assange grew up in Australia. He's a Queenslander. And in 2006, set up WikiLeaks in order to provide a platform for the publication of undisclosed material that involved misconduct and corruption in government. In the 17 years since WikiLeaks was created, the media organisation has disclosed more than 10 million documents revealing corruption and widespread abuse of power. In 2010 and 2011, WikiLeaks published material provided by Chelsea Manning, who was born Bradley Manning, a former United States Army soldier who was convicted in 2013 of violations of the Espionage Act after leaking material to the publisher WikiLeaks. She was imprisoned from 2010 to 2017, but then her sentence was commuted by President Obama. In other words, she was pardoned, not so Julian Assange. He's been in prison in Belmarsh, a maximum security prison in the UK, reserved for violent criminals and offenders, imprisoned without any conviction. The Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, has now, in the last week, defended Assange's right to remain in the UK. Mr Joyce made a very valid point that America, which has been pursuing Mr Assange for years, quote, would never hand over one of their citizens in the form they are asking the UK to hand over one of ours. Said Parnaby Joyce, if he's deported, he should be deported to Australia. Where are we at the moment on this? Mr. Mr Assange gained a court decision in Britain preventing him from being deported on health grounds. But only last week, following an appeal from America, that decision was overturned by the British High Court. Appeals are now being made to the Boris Johnson government to stop this Queenslander being sent to America. Barnaby Joyce is right when he said that Mr Assange never stole any files. Bradley Manning did. He said Mr Assange did publish them, but that was not a crime in Australia at the time. Mr Assange was not in America. A human rights lawyer who acted for Edward Snowden, who similarly fell foul of US law for leaking CIA documents in 2013, painted a bleak picture of what awaits Mr Assange if the US government wins its appeal to have him extradited from the UK. Jeslyn Redak has said Mr Assange would, quote, almost certainly be convicted if sent to America, where he would be jailed in one, face jail in one or two maximum security communication management units for up to 175 years. The same lawyer, Jeslyn Redak, argued, I feel like Australia has been very subservient to the US. I know about five eyes. This is this intelligence sharing arrangement between Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK and the United States. She said, but this is one of Australia's citizens. If you're not going to flex and stand up to your own citizens, when are you?
Well, let's go to George Christensen to see where things are. George, as for this business about going on trial in America but being allowed to transfer and serve the sentence in Australia, wasn't the High Court of Britain told that Australia may not accept any future US sentence handed down against Assange if Australia didn't believe his behaviour was criminal or the sentence proportionate? That's right, Alan. Uh, and the uh, real question is, why would we? Uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, as you mentioned earlier, Barnaby Joyce, made a statement earlier in the week where he said uh, that what Julian Assange is accused of uh, wouldn't be a crime in Australia. Uh, and, you know, he also made the point that uh, would we be not opposing the extradition of one of our own citizens yes. to, say, Saudi Arabia if he was yes. a writer uh, who insulted the Quran? Yes. Uh, and I think we all know the answer to that. And if the answer to that is is, is we would be opposing it strenuously, uh, then similarly we've got to oppose it here. I mean, the law of a single country, be it the United States or anyone else, doesn't fall upon every other citizen of the world, and that is the point here. And, and, and more so, uh, even the crimes he's being accused of, uh, I don't think hold that much weight. He did not hack anything. No. Uh, a a whistleblower no. by the name of Bradley no. Manning or Chelsea Manning did. Just so, um, you know. Just published. Uh, George, well, inside the cover of an Australian citizen's passport, the individual is assured right inside the cover that the Commonwealth of Australia, these are the exact words we'll quote, afford him or her every assistance and protection of which he or she may stand in need. What protection and assistance has this man received from the Australian government? Well, look, I've, I've reached out to our ambassador over there, George Brandis, uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, George Brandis has assured me that um, Julian Assange is getting uh, consular support or has been offered that at least. Uh, they have gone and sat in on the court cases. They've checked or tried to check on his uh, his welfare. I guess that the Assange camp is looking for something more robust though Definitely. than just uh, uh, consular support. They're looking for uh, major sort of diplomatic support. Yes. Now, I'm assured by, by you know, discussions I've had, which are uh, not for public uh, public consumption, but from, discuss from discussions I've had with key people in the government, that these matters have been raised behind the scenes. I think that we're at the point now, uh, we certainly are at the point now when the Deputy Prime Minister's over in Washington, D.C. and saying it, where these matters have got to be raised uh, front and centre in the public arena. The and they level. have been. Are we too, on this issue, are we being too subservient to the US? I mean, as that lawyer said, this is one of our finest citizens. If you're not going to flex and stand up for your own citizen, when are you? So uh, do you think there's a hope that this might happen? I think that we need to do more. Uh, Barnaby's intervention has been a very, very good thing. Uh, and I hope there are more public interventions. I mean, we just had Joe Biden up there uh, with a democracy summit, uh, and yet the US is doing this to a journalist, to a an Australian publisher. This is anti-democratic behaviour. And, you know, I know that this is a touchy issue for conservatives because they think, uh, Alan, that uh, Julian Assange put... Uh, soldiers at risk. I've got to say that it has been proven Correct. over and over again no that no soldier, no uh, US, Australian no or any other ally has been harmed or killed uh, because of what Julian Assange but George, did. George, how, how many times does an Australian publisher publish documents 
that he most probably isn't entitled to. We call them leaks, don't we? Julian yeah, Assange. Yeah. Julian Assange calls it WikiLeaks. He set it up in 2006. He's merely a publisher. The material was given to his company by Chelsea Manning. She's taken full responsibility for the documents in question. All Assange did was passively receive information and protect his source. George, isn't this what all media organisations do? And more to the point, Alan, it's what actually other media organisations did with the same information that Julian Assange received. So uh, uh, they're going after him, but are they going after the Washington Post? Are they going after the Guardian? Are they going after the myriad of other news organisations? Uh, they're not because it's very easy to uh, uh, pick someone and make them a scapegoat. Dreadful, and I think dreadful, that's what's happening dreadful, in this instance. Dreadful what's it, happening. It, it, it really Terrible. Is. Destroyed a whole man's life here. I mean, you met with American officials in March this year, but everywhere you go there seems to be a roadblock. What is the latest? Uh, well, look, the, the latest obviously is the fact that he's uh, now free to be extradited. Yes. Although yes. what's going to happen now is there's going to be a counter-appeal put in uh, by Assange's legal team. So I'm, I assume that's going to come pretty soon where they're going to challenge a number of the... Uh, see, there was only one thing that Assange won his appeal on, and that was his mental health uh, and the prospect that he could uh, be, uh, be be suicidal if he was sent to the US. Uh, all of the other points he lost on. So I think that what we're going to see right now is Assange's legal team appeal some of that. Uh, this is going to be tied up in the courts over in the UK probably for another decade, Alan, and I really think that that uh, is going to be punishment enough. Of what what, what is. he's been through has been punishment enough. But isn't he in uh, Belmarsh? I, I, is he still in Belmarsh? He, he, he is, and he's not accused of, of any crime in the UK. And appalling um, conditions in that prison. He, he should be released from there at the very least. I think that the onus is really on Joe Biden if he is pro-democracy, then he needs to drop it. We know that uh, he probably won't. The Democrats hate Julian Assange. They hate WikiLeaks because they dumped all of the uh, uh, the John Podesta and Hillary Clinton files, uh, emails, out for the public to see. And that's been seen as one of the catalytic moments that ruined uh, Hillary Clinton's chance at the presidency. We know Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, uh, reportedly said to people that she wanted to drone him. Um, you know, Joe Biden called Julian Assange a high-tech terrorist. So these are people who probably aren't going to help, Absolutely. but yet they bang on about freedom, they bang on about democracy, yes. they bang on about yes. all of these left-wing virtue-signalling <laughs> values, yes. but they're going to do absolutely nothing but, but let our man, yeah. our man, rot in a jail cell right. over in the UK. And, and further point, the person who hacked the documents, Chelsea Manning, has had yeah. her sentence commuted yeah. by the American president and WikiLeaks, the publisher, is facing 175 years of imprisonment. That, 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 that's insane. And, and that just shows you uh, how just illogical the whole thing is. The person who actually did the deed, committed the crime, had their sentence commuted uh, by, by Barack Obama when Joe Biden was his vice president. And yet uh, we've got the situation now where uh, they're trying to, uh, to, to bring the guy who published that information over to the US to stand trial for treason or something like that. Uh, it doesn't make sense. No, um, no. I, I'm just very disappointed in this whole thing that actually yeah, uh, the former president, um, Donald Trump, didn't get a chance to pardon him. I think that he would have uh, had it not been for uh, 
um, what they call the uh, you know the riots or whatever on yes. January the sixth of last year. Yes. I think uh, from all reports, he was sort of held over a barrel and told that uh, you, you better not pardon him or, uh, yes, or, or do something in Congress. George, we'll leave it there. Look, I want to congratulate you on what you're doing. I think Bob Carr, too, has been very strong, the former foreign minister, on all of this. And I just say to our viewers, look, let's just be objective and dispassionate here. This is an Australian man who has only done what media outlets do every other day. He stole nothing, he hacked nothing. Nothing that he did caused the death of any American personal individual. The person who stole the documents has actually been pardoned. The man who merely published them is facing 175 years in jail and He's an Australian, he's one of us, and we have to say we would expect him to be treated as we would want ourselves to be treated. George, thank you for your time. Have a wonderful you, Christmas. Alan. Have a wonderful Christmas and we'll catch up again shortly. You too, and the best of luck with uh, this show. It's a great <laughs> thing that you're doing. Thank New you. Media, I love it. Thank you so much. There he is, George Christensen. All right, now... Time for your say. Look, there were thousands of viewer comments from last night's program. Thank you for sending them in. And don't forget, if you have something to say, write your comment on any of the platforms. If you go to the website, alanjones.com.au, there is an appropriate spot where you can have your say. And if you've got something to say, write a comment below. Now, Lisa, on my Facebook page, wrote, and I quote, it was a fantastic show with Pauline. She highlighted some very valid points. Thank you, Alan, for creating an unbiased news platform and helping represent the citizens of Australia. Truthful, honest news is here. Rena commented, absolutely brilliant, Alan. And Pauline, thank you for your commitment to the Australian people. Rhonda commented, love Pauline. She's a fighter for the people on all matters of concern. Good to see you again, Alan. You're another fighter for our rights. And in response to my interview with Labor's Tanya Plibersek, Tony commented, quote, the Labor values have been diluted with wokeness, pandering to the Gucci Greens. And in relation to what I said about Dominic Perrottet being surrounded by green liberals, Keith, Keith understands. Well done, Keith, he said. Correct, Alan. Premier Perrottet is fine, but he's totally outnumbered in the New South Wales Liberal Party by Labor-style lefties. Kylie commented, thanks for the show, Alan. It's so good having people in media listening to both sides of the story. Great show. Well, that's some of your say for this Thursday night, or from last night. Remember to write your comments, though, and you can like and you can share the program with your friends and your family. Well, now, look, since we've been talking about freedom this week, it is axiomatic that the freedom of the West is at risk if the West is weak. Witness Myanmar, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Ukraine. It's not a question of leadership defending freedom. Leadership has to believe it rather than read someone else's composition from an auto cue. There is no evidence that President Biden can think with clarity, let alone articulate with conviction. Now the world sees Biden's support collapsing in the America that gave him the august title of President of the United States, leader of the free world. Yet now on every front, especially in his handling of crime and the economy and the pandemic, Biden is under siege. He went to Glasgow with some climate change scheme dreamt up by left-wing bureaucrats and came home empty-handed. When he came to office, inflation wasn't a problem. Now it threatens to gallop. Biden would not know where to start. So again, the left-wing ventriloquial bureaucrats are in charge. As the American Broadcasting News Service concluded in the last poll conducted only a week ago, quote, President Biden is facing significant scepticism from the American public with his job approval rating lagging across a range of major issues, unquote. I'm not sure lagging is the word. Try collapsing. Only 54% of Democrats 
approve of the way he's doing his job. He relied on so-called independent voters to win the presidency. 71% of them now disapprove. 57% of Americans disapprove of his handling of the economy. Inflation hit 6.8% in November, the biggest year-on-year -year increase in prices since 1982. Now, remember, this is the bloke who, early this month, in the middle of an energy crisis that he created, tried to grow a few hairs on his chest by releasing 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Reserve. 50 million barrels, I might add, would keep the barrels going in America for about two days. I venture that President Biden wouldn't know what strategic reserves are meant for. When Barack Obama was president, he banned oil and gas exploration and development from federal lands and then was amazed when oil and petrol prices went through the roof. President Trump removed the bans and the US became self-sufficient in oil and gas. Again, the prices at the pump fell accordingly. What was the first thing Biden did as president? Reinstated the Obama bans. Well, of course, he didn't. Some left-wing bureaucrat gave him something to sign. I venture to say he wouldn't have known what he was signing, but I suppose he can still make the pen move. Having reinstated the Obama bans, oil supply started to fall, petrol prices rocketed. So what does he do? He signs another piece of paper and releases 50 million barrels, which is nothing more than a gesture. America faced a very real crisis in political leadership, which means the free world is at significant risk. Whether America can wait until the next year's midterm elections is problematical. It is inevitable that after then, the Republicans will be in control of both houses. As I said earlier this week, it's a valid question to ask. Does America change leaders? If so, how, when and for whom? Hillary Clinton now seems to be saying she is contemplating standing in 2024. I think she's telling a demoralised Democratic Party that she's ready to stand now. Well, now, look, this is our last program for the week. We'll be back next week, of course, but let's conclude our interviews on a clarifying note. Remember, earlier this week I mentioned the European Commission releasing a set of guidelines in October of the kind of language that should and should not be used in a multicultural Europe. And amongst all the rubbish was the blinding stupidity that you couldn't refer to ladies and gentlemen. You couldn't describe people as being married or single because that would make cohabiting people invisible. You couldn't use the word citizen, that would exclude immigrants. And words like colonisation and settlement have negative connotations. So instead of talking about the colonisation of Mars, you'd have to talk about sending people to Mars. This is the European Union. Are we very far behind or are we in step with this nonsense? I've been asking, haven't I, is the Australia today, where this stuff goes on here, the kind of Australia we want it to be? Let me pose this question to a man who has written with great clarity on these issues many times, though his head must be bruised from banging it many times up against the proverbial brick wall. But as you know, this is a battle that must be won. The how and the when are critical. Nick Cater is the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre. He writes splendidly for the Australian newspaper and he joins me. Nick, thank you for your time. The stupidity of the EU Commission for e Equality is obvious to the majority, but nonetheless, it is at work here in Australia, I mean, the ladies and gentlemen, you can't be described as married or single, you can't be described as a citizen, you can't use the word Christmas. And this is happening here. What yeah. evidence is there in the streets and in the shops right now of the spirit of Christmas and the celebration of this important Christian festival? Well, I mean, I came through Wynyard Station this morning, Alan, and uh, there was a lovely uh, silver band. I think it's a railway band there playing some great Christmas carols. And I tell you what, 
people were standing around with smiles yeah. on their faces. Yes. So I think ordinary, oh yeah, people who actually go out and do do work for a living instead of sitting there behind their laptops, they they're enjoying Christmas and and they they they've got no problem with Christmas. They know they love all the traditions about it. Uh, the Christian tradition, of course, on which it's based and all the things that have happened since, they don't want to do away with it. It's uh, it's people that spend too much time on Twitter, I think. That, uh... Absolutely. Nick, it must be crook, though, when even the most woke Pope of all time yeah. sensed the attempt to erase Christianity, which is the foundation of Western civilization. Not too many people prepared today to stand up and defend it. Well, no, but I was very pleased to see... The Pope did, and others, and other leaders, you know, Daniel Macron and others in, in Europe were prepared to stand up and say, look, this is, it, this Christianity is part of our heritage. And, and people like Macron are not afraid to say that. I, I worry in this country, though, whether we, we're as vigilant Absolutely, over our Christian Nick. heritage. And, and we, we need to be because there's so much that comes from it, of course, not just Absolutely. Christmas. But, Mm. Nick, that's, that's one of the reasons we're talking to you and we'll continue to talk to you. See, in many ways, Nick, we're standing the world on its head. We've had this case yeah. in America of Jussie Smollett, a gay black actor who alleged he'd been lynched by racist, homophobic Trump supporters. It turns out he had paid two Nigerian immigrants to stage a white supremacist attack. But Joe Biden tweeted, quote, we're with you, Jussie, and blamed all of this on homophobia and racism. Kamala Harris called it a modern-day lynching. Nick, what is going on here? Well, the, the, people are so quick to jump on stories that fit their narrative. And, and uh, the police, as I gather, in Chicago were very suspicious from the start because Justin Smollett emerged from this apparent melee clutching a Subway sandwich completely intact. And they said, well, that just doesn't happen. I mean, if somebody has been attempted lynching and he's been uh, been roughed up in the street, they don't they don't stand up with a, a Subway sandwich in their hands. But the, 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 the woke, if you like, the woke president, the woke vice president and, and, and the woke media jump on this. They want stories to justify their belief that America is inherently racist, that it's full of racist people. And, and that its history is somehow shameful. And anything that runs that narrative, they'll jump on mm. with the slightest evidence yeah. that this turned out to be completely <laughs> false. You know, Malay committed true. a hate crime on himself. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously we oppose homophobia and racism. That's as obvious as the nose on mm. your face. But a person faking both, for whatever reason, is hardly worthy of the woke response that occurred. I mean, is this a manifestation of the rules changing and the attempt to establish new norms? Yeah, yeah, it, it is, Alan. I, I tell you what, it's heartening in one sense. I mean, if, if, if you have to actually fake a, 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 a white supremacist attack on yourself, then yeah. it shows that there isn't too much of it around, not as much <laughs> no, certainly as the media makes right, out. You know? right. and, and it couldn't even get any white supremacists. You had to get two uh, immigrants from Nigeria to, to play their parts. <laughs> Very you know? good I mean, point. the whole thing is ludicrous. Very but, but good could... point. But nonetheless, yeah. this stuff from the European Commission is gaining traction rather than condemnation, because clearly the woke world is a minority, but the minority seeks to assume the influence of the majority. What do you do about this? Well, they do. They, they want to set these rules. And we did some polling earlier this year and asked people, do you think that political correctness is basically out of control? Four out of five Australians say yes. Even a majority of Green supporters say yes. So that's, that's, that's the view of, of, of the vast majority of people 
But it just, I think what it shows, Alan, is it's it ruling you, just class to, Just now. to interrupt you there, Nick. Nick refers to this. I'll just give you those details because we're not expecting Nick to commit this to memory. But the polling asked whether too much of our Australian way of life is being sacrificed That's to right. political correctness. Now, 77% of Australians agreed. 87% right. of coalition voters, 70% of Labor voters agreed, and even 48% of the Greens. So why, That's Nick, right. why, That's Nick, to use your words, does the woke corporate world yield to your words the cacophony on Twitter rather than understand the voices of the real people? Because the corporate world's worse than anybody. They, they are. This is what this is where I think that they're they're you know, they're in there to make business, right? And they're, they're going and changing the names of products, perfectly good products like Coon Cheese or Redskins, you know, those little chewy red sweets we used to have because they're politically incorrect. But when you ask ordinary people, they don't want those names changed. Correct. And it, it seems to me that whoever they're listening to, they're not listening to their customers. Uh, the, the corporate boardrooms are just in a bubble right now. And they, they're just out of touch Absolutely. with the, the rest of the world. Absolutely. And nowhere more so than the so-called debate, where there is no mm. debate at all, on climate change. Now, as you've said, this is driven by sentiment, not science. When carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere, what are we on about with decarbonisation? We're an energy superpower. Why are we playing this game? It, we've got caught up in a whole international clown show on this, Alan, and it's been going on, as you know, for 30 years or more. Yeah. This idea that, you know, that the world can act together to reduce carbon emissions because, you know... But once these processes start, of course, it's very hard to stop them. You know, you, they, they, they take a life of their own. And unfortunately, I think Australia, like other countries, is just caught up in this. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult, as you know. I mean, you've been doing it longer yes. and harder than most mm. to actually make any traction when you speak out against mm. it because it is, in the end, uh, uh, you know, like a faith, really. People yes. believe this on it faith is. as it's much as anything. It's a cult. I mean, it's totally mm. emotional. I mean, how could, seriously, someone cheering Greta Thunberg, for goodness sake... I thought, I thought you wrote brilliantly when you talked about this whole issue and the, the strategy to, quote... These are, these are Nick's words. ..to scare the population witless about a common enemy that only the state has the power to fight. And you call it yeah. the oldest, most ignoble trick in the political playbook. But you further say, Nick, I have to say, especially for Australia, quote, balancing benefits with costs is all but impossible in an atmosphere of catastrophe. And, of course, we've learnt that with the pandemic, didn't we, Nick? Well, that, that, that's, that's exhibit number one on this, Alan. You know, we, all, all, the, all the talk about benefits, many of which haven't happened, incidentally. I, mean, I, think, I think we were sort of over-promised on, on the vaccines. They haven't turned out to be quite as effective as they hoped. Uh, but, you know, everything was promised, but nobody looked at the cost. And the cost is horrendous. Not just the cost in money, that's big enough, but the cost in human lives and human dignity. You know the stories. You, people talk to you a lot about this. People talk to me, Alan. People are doing it, are having miserable lives because of what the government's yes. done. Businesses that, have, that have, have, have fallen over and won't be coming back. Mm. And, and nobody in, who, who's no. involved with setting these rules that kill these businesses off have any idea what's happening because they basically don't get away from their laptops. No, they've never... They've, I keep saying they've never filled out a payroll tax slip. You take Daniel Andrews of Victoria, declared a state of emergency in March, 
The state faced the biggest lockdown in the world and Daniel Andrews said he'd flatten the curve of COVID-19. Yeah. So everyone suffered. Today, 1,622 cases as I speak to you. The curve's not flattened, but the suffering has been almost inhuman. The public have been flattened. That's right. No logic to this, right? So he closes down the state, I think, in July, wasn't it? Or yeah. late July on the basis of, I think, 16 cases. And now there's, you know, well over a 1,000 yes. a day and he thinks it's OK to open up. Please that, tell me that, what that, health that, advice is he acting on? Is well, he acting on any advice? That's right. We almost need a Royal Commission. You're dead right. Where is the yeah. advice? I said over and over again, give us a slip of paper that tells us what the advice is. But now... Daniel Andrews has extended power to himself, so the state of emergency, he has the power to extend it if he wants for another 15 months. So through the Parliament, and I wonder whether Victorians know this via a couple of unknown people in the Upper House, Daniel Andrews has the right to declare a pandemic at any time without a single case of a specific disease in the state. Hey, is this North Korea? Oh, yeah. What's happening there is just atrocious. And it's not being reported, Lizzie, Alan. I mean, doctors' surgeries are being raided by parking inspectors, would you believe, who are given special powers. They're made authorised officers to raid doctors' surgeries to get personal patient information. This is when they think doctors are being giving away too many exemptions. This is, this is wrong on so many levels. And, and I think what frustrates me more than anything is you just don't hear this spoken about. No. Hardly spoken well, about at and all. And we know why. We know why, Nick. Because, and, mm. and you and I are in this league, the critics of this disproportionate response are condemned and vilified and indeed cancelled. So what happens when the solution fails to fix the problem? And, and then don't you like the bit the government claims, oh, hang on, hang on, it would have been a lot worse if not for our prudent programs. They were never proven answers, were they? No, no. And can I just say, just to go off track a bit, this is a benefit of what you're doing right now, Alan. You're, you're, you're doing this as an independent, independent presenter uh, with a lot of support behind you. And, and we can have these frank conversations yes. in a way that's yes. very hard if you're attached to a mainstream yes. media company. Yes. I mean, the freedoms that were taken away from us was nothing more than a human experiment. What mm. do you think is the correlation, Nick, between this centralised, coercive government and incompetence? I mean, you say, quote, the Andrews government serves as a living example of why governments that rule by fiat are more mm. prone to failure than those forced to run the gauntlet of Parliament. Decision-making mm. is restricted to a handful of individuals who lack perfect knowledge and are vulnerable to groupthink. You say contrary yeah. facts, discordant data and alternative strategies are suppressed. Since all power emanates from the Emperor, no-one in his inner circle is going to tell him he has no clothes. Increased power, you wrote, leads to an excess of hubris, any reserves of humility the leader might have, are depleted as the God complex begins to set in. Listen, yeah. we, we got to do, get, we've got to get rid of this stuff, Nick. We've got to get rid of this stuff. This is not the way a democratic society functions. No, it's not, 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 it's not democratic, but it's not good government. Because it's common sense, right? And you know, I mean, I know here at the Menzies Research Centre, I might come up with a bright idea in the shower in the morning, but that idea is almost always improved when I share it with the yes. team here. Uh, and, and you share it even more widely and it gets even better and you knock off any dangerous edges to it. That's the problem when you're just making 
very important decisions about the economy, about people's lives from an in, within the Premier's office with probably just a handful of people in the room. That's why it's bad government and that's why, awkward as Daniel Andrews finds Parliament, that's what he's got Parliament for. That's right. what people elected Absolutely. their parliamentary representatives for, and he should be using them. Okay. And, and why Parliament was able to sort of surrender these yes. powers to him, I mean, what do they want to do? They not want to do their job. OK, just finally, before you go, then, answer my question that I posed in the first programme. Is this the Australia that we would like it to be? Certainly not, Alan. I, I, I happen to believe that Australia is a self-correcting country and it gets better all the time, but as I mean to say, it doesn't go through some terrible patches. And we're in one of those now. We've got to learn from what's happened in the last two years in COVID. We've got to, we've got to and correct all the imbalances and get our freedoms back. Good on you. Wonderful stuff. There he is. Great to talk, Nick. And we're going to talk to you Thanks, again Alan. as well. Happy Christmas to you and the family as well. And, and not at all. That's Nick Cater, the CEO of the Menzies Research Centre. Now, you can go to, you know, the website, alanjones.com.au. It's all there. And you'll hear, you can hear Nick on the podcast tomorrow morning as well. And you can make some comments. What are your thoughts? Is this, you've heard what he said, is this the Australia that we want Australia to be? Well, look, just before we go... There must be many businesses, large and small, reading from an economic textbook that I have never seen. The Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, who's a very good man, whose departure will be a real loss from the federal parliamentary scene, but he has nonetheless on advice, there it is again, extended the two-year biosecurity ban on foreign flagged vessels for further two months to February 17. How on earth do these cruise businesses survive? P&O Cruises which are Pinot Cruise Australia, it's a division of the world's largest cruise company, Carnival. It has blasted the decision and it says despite high vaccination rates, there was no certainty on when the vessels could return. I mean, this is the issue, isn't it? Is it dishonesty? What other word do you use? Weren't we all told to get vaccinated? Currently, the national figure for double vaxxed is 89.7, single jab 93.5. Wasn't the deal that the nation gets vaxxed, then government gets out of our way and hands back our freedoms. The president of P&O Cruises, Australia, and I should point out, this is a $5 billion industry facing two years of inactivity. P&O Cruises, Australia president said, and I quote, no government authority, federal or state, has provided feedback on the industry's proposed operational guidelines to enable an informed decision on bringing our ships back to Australia. Now, this is it, isn't it? Big brother, big government, unilaterally making decisions with no consultation and, dare I say, no regard for the impact on others. A $5 billion cruise industry and our P&O cruises have cancelled their Australian cruises until at least mid-April. Common sense will tell you it'll take months and further cost to manage the complex logistics necessary to return a ship into service before sailing back to Australia. But if people have been vaccinated and even had a booster... Why can't they go on a cruise? The livelihood of 18,000 Australians depends on cruise tourism. Royal Caribbean, the world's second largest cruise line, has cancelled three ships in Australia this summer, adversely affecting the cruise travel plans of about 250,000 Australians. What's all this crap about getting our freedoms back? A $5 billion industry languishes. Can someone in government provide a single slip of paper which tells us the so-called expert advice on which the bans on the cruise industry are based. Which brings me to my quote for the night. Because this decision seems very much a broken promise. We were told, get vaccinated and normal will return. 
Not so for the cruise industry and not so on many other fronts. To all of you who provide jobs and joy in the cruise industry, to many Australians, I offer the observation, it's a bad thing to break a promise, but it's the worst thing to let a promise break you. So hang in. Now that's it for this week. It's been a magnificent week in this pioneering digital initiative. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And by the way, this is for people all over the world. I'll tell you about that on Monday. Countries all over the world listening to us. Tell your friends, Monday to Thursday, 8pm, the best show in town, alanjones.com.au. And tomorrow on the website, I'll offer some sporting stories, a bit of rugby and a bit of cricket, some good reading for the weekend. All the editorials are on the website, the salt and pepper of our lives, alanjones.com.au. See you Monday. Have a great weekend. Thanks for being with us and good night.